Welcome to episode 10 of the Consider the Dog podcast. And in this episode, you'll hear me discuss a very serious outcome of a resource guarding case that highlights some of the more uncomfortable and challenging realities of working with aggressive dogs. I also answer questions from our members on a variety of topics, including whether or not to use CBD supplements for reactive dogs, what to do with a dog who's received ample training but is still getting way overstimulated on walks, whether to use flexi leashes with fearful dogs, and dealing with a dog who keeps stealing toys from other dogs and the family wants to just let the dogs work it out. Believe it or not, we talk about a whole lot more as well. Stay tuned. This is a good one. Just like our relationships with other humans in our lives, our relationships with our dogs are dynamic and complex. I believe that in order for those relationships to flourish or to find resolution when those relationships become strained, we must attend to them thoughtfully and with care. Welcome to the Consider the Dog podcast, created from archived recordings of live sessions where our members get to ask their most burning questions to some of the greatest practitioners of canine behavior. I'm your host, Tyler Muto. I hope you enjoy this episode. And remember, if you want to join the conversation live, you can visit us at considerthedog.com. So uh, before I jump into questions, I did just want to chat a little bit. Um, you know, at the end of the previous stream, which was the end of March that we did with Evan Doggett, we touched very briefly on behavioral euthanasia. And um, just about a week after that, I actually got an email from the owner of the Rottweiler, the puppy Rottweiler that's in the resource guarding course here on Consider the Dog. And the message was to let me know that they had to make the decision to put him down. Um, so obviously it's a very heavy decision for anybody to make a very challenging decision. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is just because, you know, he is in one of our videos here on Consider the Dog. Obviously I worked with him um, and, you know, we, we did see some success, but now here he is, he's a more mature dog, about three years old, and the struggle has become very, very real. The kind of main reason I wanted to bring it up was just a little bit of a discussion on, you know, kind of professional ethics. And this is, this is both for the professionals out there that are listening to the stream, but also to pet owners who might be searching for a, you know, trainer locally to work with. So, you know, obviously it was really sad for me to hear about Samson and that he had to get put down. And, um, you know, it's not really news that any trainer wants to hear, but, you know, I was kind of lying in bed that night and I was thinking to myself, like how horrible I would have felt if I didn't handle the discussion with his owner when that dog was a puppy, the way I did. And I believe I addressed this in the course a little bit, but when he first brought Samson to me, he was 12 weeks old. And we show footage in the course of when I was kind of initially evaluating him and just testing his degree of aggression, you could see that he like really came at me hard. And my advice to the owner at that time was to return the dog to the breeder because that level of aggression at such a young age was just a major red flag. Uh, and especially I've seen that in not only Rottweilers, but other sort of, you know, guardian breeds in the past breeds that do have to a certain extent, some aggression bred into them because that's, that's, you know, was sort of their initial purpose, you know, and it usually doesn't go well, and especially at that age. And, and, you know, essentially what I, what I said to the owner was that I would, you know, I would obviously, um, you know, I wasn't going to turn him away. If he wanted to work with the dog, I would of course help him. I would of course give it my all, but my advice was to return the dog to the breeder that I thought, even if we made progress now at this young age, I actually said to him that he's very likely going to run into issues when that dog matures and becomes an adult, that it was going to require a lot of ongoing training. It could require tens of thousands of dollars in training fees and costs, um, as you know, throughout the dog's life, because you're going to have to, with a dog like this, you're going to have to retrain and retrain and retrain. And when I got the message from his owner that they were making the decision to put him down, that was actually the first thing he said. He said, you know, Tyler, I'm, I'm really sorry to write this message, but basically things played out the way you said, the way you said it would. 
and now he's a mature dog. We've been trying our best, um, but they had a few incidents. I'm not going to get into the detail about the incidents, but um, you know, they they really it was it was the right decision for them to make to to put him down. And that's a hard decision to make with a three-year-old dog. I think obviously as hard as it is to return a puppy to the breeder when you purchase a puppy and you've been waiting for it and you have all your sort of hopes put into it. Um, you know, you don't have a three-year long relationship with that puppy. So obviously, you know, from a professional standpoint, we want to make sure that we're being honest with our clients. We want to make sure that we are, you know, telling them reality and helping them to make the best decisions for them. And I don't, you know, again, I didn't make the decision for him, but when the dog was young, I just wanted him to have all the information. I wanted him to have my advice. And that was more important to me than, you know, making the sale, right? Cause he wanted at that age, he wanted to do a, a board and train. And, and I, my position was, I don't know that it's worth it. I don't know that it's worth the expense for you. Cause I, I just don't know that this is going to end well in the long run. And, um, you know, I think from an ethical standpoint, professional ethics, that's really important. But from a, if you're a dog owner too, I just wanted to point out that, you know, for me, if, if I'm, cause I, you know, a, a lot of my clients, as many of you professionals out there know, like uh, we all get clients that have been to other trainers for, I'm sure, but you know, dog trainers have gotten clients that have been to me before and it just wasn't the right fit. Like it's not, you know, none of us are, are successful all the time and none of us are the right fit for every dog and every owner. And, but if you, if you, um, you know, whenever I hear about somebody who goes to a dog trainer and the trainer, and it's a, it's a serious behavior issue and something that's complicated. Um, and the trainer says like, oh yeah, we guarantee we're going to get this under control for you. Like we can, we can solve any problem, no matter what. And, and things like that, that really kind of like salesy lingo that if you're, you know, interviewing potential dog for trainers or talking to them on the phone that, you know, that's a potential red flag. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that that's not going to be a good trainer. I'm just saying it's a, it's a bit of a flag. It's, it's just something that should, um, prick your ears up a little bit and just something a little bit pay attention to. So, um, again, I, I, you know, I just wanted to bring this up because, you know, I think it's just important. Like, you know, if you guys are watching that video or you've watched that video, I think it's important to know that, you know, yeah, it's not like you, you go through this process and 100% of the time, like, you know, la-di-da for the rest of life, you know, especially with these serious dogs. And that even with a dog like this, that, you know, for all intents and purposes, at the end of the the training that you see in that course, that dog was doing awesome. And he did awesome for a really long time with his owners and his owners did everything right. You know, I think that's the other important piece here is, you know, they, they did as good as you can expect any dog owner to do with a dog who's that challenging. And they really tried their hardest. So, you know, I think it's just good to understand that, um, you know, that's just the reality of these things. And it's just sort of like a transparency thing, you know, that, that, that's, that's the way this situation has ended. So anyway, I know it's kind of a somber note to start our live stream on, but it's just something that I wanted to chat about. Didn't want to save it to the end. So that being said, I'm going to jump into some questions from the chat and you guys can feel free to just continue to post questions. Jake keeps track of them all for me. Jake's in the background. Um, for those that don't know, he does all of our video production and editing and, um, media work and stuff like that. So he's sort of like the, the, um, central nervous system here behind consider the dog. So, all right. Um, Sage is here and Sage is also, I believe the dog's name. So we got a question here that says Sage is trained to e-collar. And what do I think about using an invisible fence when they go to their camp on the weekends? Um, okay, so there are a couple questions. So first of all, is is this a physically installed invisible fence or is this one of those like systems where you can set up like a virtual boundary? There are some that are GPS based and there are some that are have a unit that puts out a radius, but that's that's kind of one question. Um, is what, what sort of system is in place? Is it already installed? And then has Sage been previously trained to it? So that's the other, the other thing that we want to know. So, but, um, you know, I guess sort of independent of the answer to those questions. So in general, it's fine to use invisible fence and e-collar. There are a couple things that you may want to be aware of. Um, a, I don't think it's really good to train both at the same time. So if you haven't started your dog on either and you're considering doing both, um, 
you can start with one or the other. And it can matter which one you start with. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Um, but it is a choice that you can make. You can start with the fence and do the e-collar later. You can start with the e-collar and do the fence later. You just prioritize your life and then understand the pros and cons of each and what you might want to think about as you're going through that process. So there's that. Um, and then what I would say is, like, let's say, for instance, that the dog is fence trained already and you now want to bring an e-collar into your world. Generally, my recommendation is to do the initial e-collar conditioning and sort of initial training off the property, or at least off, like if the, if the invisible fence is in the backyard, do your e-collar conditioning in the front yard. And that'll help to avoid any confusion. But the other thing that you really need to understand if you have started your dog on the invisible fence and you're going through the process of e-collar conditioning is your dog already has, did I just say you're a dog? I might've said that. I'm not sure. I'm drinking uh, Jake's rocket fuel coffee that he makes. I don't normally drink a lot of coffee and he makes very strong coffee. So my brain might be wired a little bit funny right now. Uh, anyway, I digress. So your dog already has an idea of what the e-collar means. And what I mean by that is your dog associates it with sort of a geographical location, right? Stimulation means there is this invisible boundary that is here that if I proceed, it's going to be very uncomfortable for me. As long as I stay away from that geographical zone, I'm good. And so because of that, you just have to recognize that not only are you trying to teach your dog what the e-collar means. So in the context of like most people start with the recall. So you take a totally green dog that's never done either of these things before fence or e-collar and you're teaching them recall. Your job is just to focus on showing that dog that movement towards you is what um, turns the collar off, right? That the collar is, um, it has to do with the dog's proximity to you. But now what we're doing is we have to not only pay attention to teaching the dog that, but we also have to pay attention to making sure that we aren't accidentally reinforcing or continuing to reinforce this other notion that the dog has. Because what happens sometimes, you know, we're starting collar condition, uh, conditioning and we put the dog on a long line and we're standing in the general vicinity where we want to stand and we let the dog go out on the line. And when they get, you know, so far away, we apply some collar pressure and we help the dog come back to us so the collar pressure can turn off. And if we're not paying attention, we might accidentally be applying that collar pressure always around the same spot in our yard or in our room or, or in our, yeah, I mean, it could be in a room um, or in a field, whatever. So although we think we're teaching the dog come to me, the dog's not even paying attention to its proximity to us because it's starting to see a pattern as to where he or she is when that collar starts. So all we're really do doing is reinforcing this idea that the collar has to do with a boundary, a geographical location, and we're generalizing that in the dog's mind, you know? So how might we get around that? Well, we could just make sure that we are really moving around a lot when we're doing conditioning so that the dog isn't frequently in the same area, you know, when they feel the collar. Um, that's kind of one thing that we could do. The other thing that we can do is just make sure that maybe we've done a little bit more um, or just ensure that we've done good foundational training, teach the dog what come means so that as we're layering in the collar with this new thing, we're able to give the dog that piece of information. Like, Hey, you feel this. And then I say, come, you feel this. And then I say, come, and it just makes it more likely that we're going to be building on to uh, a behavior that we want to be associating the collar to, as opposed to a dog that doesn't have a good recall uh, yet. And we're applying collar pressure and then we've got to make sure we really quickly reel them in on the leash or run away from them. So they kind of start to move towards us or squat down or whatever it is that helps your dog get to you. Cause it could be any variety of things. So that's just kind of one, one piece of the puzzle is just from the conditioning process itself. If your dog's already fence trained, um, you just want to be semi aware of that. And then of course the same rules could apply going the other way when we're, when we're starting to teach the dog about the geographical fence that um, it just may take a little bit extra handholding 
to make the dog understand that, okay, like, no, no, no. When you feel this, don't come running back to me. I mean, you can, but like, I want you to be paying attention to where you're feeling the collar. So it might just take more repetitions, you know, for instance. And because of that, you may want to just ensure that as you're teaching about the fence, that you're able to adjust whatever system you have down to a low level so that as the dog's trying to figure out this new definition of collar pressure, um, it's not, it's not stressing the dog to the point that they're just freaked out that, oh my God, like I got to get, I got to be close to you because that's what the collar means. And they weren't at all even connecting it to where they were. Now, here's the weird part of this. And I know you, you know, you guys probably thought this was a simple question, but if you hung around me long enough, you know that, um, my answers are never, are never, are never that simple. So here's the weird part of this. The weird part is if we are going to do the opposite, let's say we're going to start the fence first. Um, then it is some, you know, so there's this argument to be made that, um, that because with the fence, what we're trying to do is create an association to a location. Um, and we want to create like a superstitious fear, essentially. I mean, at the end of the day, um, good invisible fence training isn't that much different than good, um, like snake avoidance training, you know, like rattlesnake avoidance and things like that. And what we know about, or at least what I know about rattlesnake avoidance, because I have several friends that do it that are also good, you know, regular dog trainers that do e-collar obedience and stuff like that too, is that generally speaking, the dogs who have had no prior e-collar experience actually learn the snake avoidance better because since they've had no like formal collar conditioning, they really it, it, it increases the probability that they're going to have that superstitious association, which is what we want there, right? And obedience training is something we want to avoid, but in this context, it's something that we want. So, um, and, and then the other thing is because of that, because they don't already have a tolerance to the collar and some understanding of it. And so again, when you collar condition well, it makes the dog more resilient to the collar. It makes it less likely that the collar is going to create stress. If you haven't done collar conditioning, you can get that stress factor more easily, which in many contexts is a bad thing. We're talking about intentionally creating a fear because it's going to help keep the dog alive. We want to be able to create stress easily. And so the dogs who have had no prior collar conditioning often don't need as high of levels to properly get the snake avoidance as dogs who have been collar conditioned for obedience. So to kind of restate that, if you've already e-collar trained your dog and you want to do something like snake avoidance, there's a decent probability you're going to need to crank that dial up significantly higher than you would need to with that same dog if you did the snake avoidance before you did all your obedience training. So again, it's this is why we have a decision to make because um, obviously sometimes when you create that, that association of the e-collar being a little bit of a scary thing, then when you want to use it for obedience, sometimes you're fighting against that. And we've seen a little bit of the fallout of that. Um, there was a recent question in the group about somebody whose client had previously tried e-collar training on their own with a junky collar and the levels were too high. And they really freaked their dog out. And now they're trying to do it properly with the trainer. And every time the collar goes on the dog, the dog kind of shuts down, you know, but Again, I think there's a, still a difference between like, we just slap this tool on a dog. We walk the dog over to the perimeter where the little flags are, and we just blast the dog right on repetition. Number one, I think even if you were to do some amount of starting on a moderately low level, you know, it doesn't have to be super low. Like when we're doing obedience, but starting moderately low, giving the dog some repetition of like, Hey, this thing, the sight, the sound, the smell is associated with you feeling this. And then after a bunch of repetition, then we bump the dial up and we make it a little bit scary for the dog. Um, I think you can get a lot of the benefits of doing that sort of avoidance, um, fear inducing, you know, training ahead of time. And if you do it mindfully, we can avoid some of the pitfalls that would negatively impact us you know, with our training, meaning even this dog that was in the Facebook group, you know, posted on the Facebook group that had this bad experience on e-collar and now is having a terrible experience. Even that dog, there's a chance that we could have done the e-collar first for something like snake avoidance or invisible fence and done it more mindfully. 
still achieved the goal we wanted to achieve and not ended up with this sort of puddle of a dog that we have now when the e-collar goes on. Um, so again, there's some argument, I guess, there for starting the fence first and for not doing too much prior conditioning. You know, you're going to get the association you, you want right away and you probably won't need as high of levels as if you've done already like recall place down. Okay. So kind of a weird thing. Of course, the benefit of having done all that e-collar conditioning already is that it's obviously might make it a little bit easier for your dog when you do your fence conditioning. But the downside is that I, you know, in, in, in my experience and the experience of some colleagues of mine that do snake avoidance training, there's a higher probability that the dog may one day blow through the fence with a dog who's had prior obedience training on the collar and then was taught the fence. Like the fence may not be as reliable as if it were taught to that dog as a sort of blank slate. And, um, and you may ultimately need higher levels on the fence to like nail things down. Again, I'm not saying start with those super high levels. I'm just saying you might need to eventually dial it up um, to, to create the, the degree of what ultimately is fear, right? Let's just be very clear about that. The, what, but, you know, these invisible fences, snake avoidance, it is a fear-based training. But what we're doing is we're, we're weighing that, we're weighing a controlled exposure to something scary as a potential like safety to protect, you know, think of it like vaccinating a young child. You know, my kids, when they get their first vaccines, it's like terrifying to them and they kick and scream. And uh, my son had to do allergy testing where they put all the needles on his, like he flipped out with that. He absolutely hated it. But as a parent, we're going like, I need to, I'm, I have to put you in this really scary situation right now because I'm looking at, out for your long-term health. And that's kind of the situation we're in with these snake avoidance and visible fats. And even like a really solid recall trained on the e-collar, although Obviously, our goal would, when doing that is to not really make it scary for the dog at all. It doesn't have to be scary. But my point is, even for these people that argue that the e-collar is this horrible, fear-inducing thing, right? There are so many parallels in life uh, with ourselves, with our children, even with our dogs, taking them to the vet, which can be very scary for them, where we're weighing out, you know, something that we're doing in a, in a, a hopefully as mindful as a way as possible. Okay. Um, so those are just some of the things to think about, I guess, um, when you're doing the, the fence training, ultimately it's okay to do. The reason I asked about what type of fence it is, is because if it's a, you know, if it's a physically installed fence, then we know that boundary is going to be in the exact same spot every time. I don't necessarily know. I don't have personal experience with the ones that put out a radio frequency sort of radius around a central hub. I don't know how reliable they are. I don't know if you unplug it, plug it back in, if that radius is always going to be in the same exact spot, or if, you know, who knows, maybe it's affected by the humidity in the air, or I, I just, I have no experience with that. So we just want to be really aware of that because, um, you know, those things can make it, you know, more or less, um, I guess, predictable for the dog and, and, and can really affect our conditioning process. So, okay. That was my super lengthy answer. Um, I did see that she re she replied, I think it's a, she replied, no invisible fence yet, not trained to it. So, but again, yeah, you could do it. Like I have no issues against it whatsoever. Um, we did it at an apartment that we rented that had a fence installed. It was a four foot fence, but Lobo could actually jump over the fence and he would, because there was frequently deer and bunnies in the neighbor's yard. And, um, we just ran the fence, the invisible fence along the top. It was just a chain link fence and, you know, it, we didn't own the house, so we couldn't put in a taller fence or anything like that. So, um, but that was enough to keep him contained in the yard. So, okay. Um, yeah. So I, I hope that answers that. If anybody has any follow-up questions, feel free to post. Um, okay. Pam asks, do I have any thoughts regarding whether hemp and CBD that is sold for dogs might help calm a leash reactive dog? Okay. So um, I like CBD. We sell CBD here. I use CBD personally. Um, I think it's a great product. I think it has many benefits. I have seen many dogs where it helps significantly with you know, just sort of generalized anxiety. So your sort of baseline level of chronic stress and anxiety where I don't see a significant change is when we're talking about its effect on acute episodes of what's really more of um, a panic or an explosion than like anxiety is almost too mild of a term, 
for when a dog is getting leash reactive. You know, obviously it starts with that baseline anxiety, but, um, the degree of intensity of that stimulus in the environment to flip that switch into just full blown explosion, um, is way more than I think CBD or any anxiety medication, unless you're just like thoroughly sedating a dog, which is not something I, um, would do. Um, I, I don't see it making a significant impact on that level. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't use it? I mean, if your dog, I'll put it this way. If your dog is totally chill, like in every other context, it's not like a, not pacing a lot, not whining, doesn't seem overly easily stressed or whatnot. Um, then I don't know, like maybe it's not going to make that much of a difference for you. But if your dog is leash reactive and you also have a lot of underlying stress in other areas of life, yeah, like absolutely give it a whirl. Because I think, you know, we talk about, um, well, my good friend, Chad Mackin, um, you know, many of you guys are familiar with him. He was a, a, a early mentor of mine really. And, um, he used to talk about the layered stress model. So like every, every dog, but every human, every, every sort of sentient being to a certain extent has a threshold of stress that beyond which they become explosive. We have all been there. We've all had that bad day. And usually not always, of course, but usually when we have a bad day, it's not one thing, right? There might be one major thing, but we're, we don't pop right away. It's like that major thing is sitting there, but then there's also like, oh, we stepped in a big puddle on our way into work and got our sock wet and, uh, you know, spilled the coffee and uh, boss was giving us a hard time. And you know what I mean? Just whatever it is, like these things, it's just like all these things. And it's at a certain point, boom, we explode. Right. And it could be something really little that pushes us over the edge. And so if we do think there isn't a sort of baseline underlying layer of anxiety, that's kind of persistently there, then, you know, that's already one layer of stress that we're building on that gets us closer to that dog exploding. And if we can at least remove that one layer of stress, again, chances are this dog's still going to explode, but it's just, it's like one one degree less of like work that we have to do. Um, and of course there's, you know, there's still documenting all kinds of other health benefits of, of CBD, but I would just say, I would say, you know, a, it like in general, doesn't hurt to try it as long as you're getting good quality, you know, product and whatnot. Um, but as far as like what I highly recommend it, um, only in those cases where there's a more generalized underlying degree of stress, I don't think you're going to see a direct impact on the reactivity. Um, it may or may not assist in the progress of any other training that you are doing. Okay. So I guess that's my, my answer to that. Okay, cool. Um, again, make sure you get good quality CBD though, and just be aware of like different dosing dosage can vary like wildly from person to person, from dog to dog. So, you know, you can, you can do some research into it. Um, I would say, make sure you get CBD just from my own research, make sure you get CBD that has been independently lab tested and where you can view the results. Um, so they post the results publicly. And when I say lab tested, I'm not necessarily talking about potency, although that's not a bad thing to want to you know, ensure that they're actually selling you what they say they're selling you. But specifically, you want to be, have it tested for heavy metals and pesticides. A lot of the hemp, which is what CBD comes from, that is used in the sort of mass produced CBD that we're seeing right now with this, you know, sort of fad that's been going on is grown overseas in China and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, we just want to make sure that we know kind of what's in it because hemp absorbs a lot of what's in the soil around it. And so if that soil has been heavily treated with pesticides or, you know, whatever else for fertilizer or whatnot, or if it's soil that has a high mercury content or other heavy metals that can absorb into the plant and thus into the oil. And so you don't want to be putting that into your dog's body, obviously, especially the heavy metals. Um, so, you know, most good quality CBD is grown locally. A lot of times the same company that is selling and distributing it is also doing the growing. And so there's, there's control from seed to, you know, cash register of the product and we know what's in it. And that's kind of what you want to look for. Um, the company that I use personally is called Lazarus Naturals. If anybody's interested, I think they make a really nice product and it's priced really well for what they're, what they're offering. 
Okay. Um, Abigail. Abigail says there's a she has a five year old uh, German Shepherd. So this is a board and train who came in already on an e-collar and the owners had worked with several other trainers. His obedience is great, loves to work, but he's extremely reactive, struggles just seeing people and dogs in almost every scenario and is overstimulated, isn't excited about food or play in those scenarios. How would I address these situations where he gets so worked up, he starts vocalizing even without any e-collar or prong correction. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, one thing is like, I don't, I don't always think like an e-collar or a prong correction is the best correction for these scenarios. Um, with, I think most dogs I've, I've talked about this a lot. Um, you know, we have to look at different types of correction, punishment, whatever you want to call it. The same way we look at different types of reinforcement, right? Like sometimes food reinforcement is the best choice for a situation. Sometimes play reinforcement is a better choice. Sometimes very calm, soothing praise is a better choice. And different dogs can react differently to different types of reinforcement. We have to look at punishment the same way, corrections the same way, or anything like that you're going to use for negative reinforcement. Any sort of aversive tool, we have to look at the same way. We have to say, what is the effect that this tool has on the dog? And is that the effect that I want? And uh, for a dog that's overstimulated and really reactive, we generally, when we use a correction, we want that correction to help bring the dog out of that overly stimulated state and to reduce their overall excitement and arousal. And e-collars and prong collars don't do a very good job of that. And, um, you know, you guys probably heard me say this a few times, but um, that's actually the reason that we like them for obedience. Because when we're using them for obedience and we're spending all this time and energy sort of pumping our dog up and getting them motivated and happy, and we want them to enjoy their obedience training and be energetic. And then if they make a mistake, we just want to give a little correction. We don't want that correction to flatten them. We don't want it to take the wind out of their sails. We just want it to be like an oopsie sort of learning moment for them. And so e-collars and prong collars are really great for obedience training, but they don't tend to work super effectively when it comes to bringing a dog out of reactivity or bringing a dog out of aggression. Um, and a lot of times what I see when I'm traveling around teaching seminars and, and working with trainers is when we're too married to those tools. Um, like I've had a few, a few, you know, dog owners attend my seminars that had issues like this. And they would say, yeah, you know, I worked with a trainer with the e-collar and every time, you know, we're just not making progress. And they'd keep just telling me to turn the dial up more. And it's like, if, if, if the stimulation wasn't giving you the effect you wanted on one level, what's going to, what makes you think that just increasing the response to that, right? If it's not the response, like it's one thing, if it gives you the response you want, just not like, not like enough of it, but it's just not even giving you the response you want, you know, what, what makes you think that more of that is going to be helpful. So, um, Abigail says she knows it's a loaded question. I might need more info. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there, so there's, there's like, obviously I can't fix the problem, um, you know, in a live stream, right? Like there's, there's obviously a lot to know to like how to resolve this, but for me, I would, you know, I'm not saying you have to ditch the prong and the e-collar because the dog like this can benefit from obedience training. And you can, those are great tools for that part of the puzzle. Um, but when we're dealing with the reactivity, we want to deal with the reactivity. And so what we want to focus on is okay, let's work on exercises that help this dog to be calm. Let's work on exercises where we can reinforce calmness. Let's work on exercises where we can show the dog that we disagree with high levels of arousal. We can show the dog how we want it to behave around things that are stimulating to it. Um, and, you know, again, I just kind of plug my own work, but this is a lot of what the food claiming exercise is sort of built around that idea. And, um, the walking behind and the way that we approach the walk is all about the reason we do that is because it's about bringing arousal down on the walk. Right. And that's, what we want to focus on is the arousal levels. So, you know, the food claiming gives you the opportunity to tackle the arousal issue from both ends. It gives us the ability to reinforce low arousal, which I think is something that's highly, highly overlooked. Oftentimes we think that food is all about excitement. And yeah, I've even heard trainers criticize food-based training as not liking it because it makes the dogs too excited, but that's, that's all on how you're using it and what you're choosing to reinforce. And again, um, I'm going to sound like a broken record on some of these streams, but you can absolutely use food to reinforce low arousal. 
Um, I was first cued into that by my friend and colleague, Emily Larlam. She's a really talented clicker trainer. I highly recommend checking her out on YouTube. Her YouTube name is Kiko Pup, K-I-K-O-P-U-P. She mostly does tricks and like freestyle training, but um, she actually does some excellent behavioral work. And I think her skill and her focus on arousal and um, and sort of creating a, a balanced mindset in the dog is very evident if you just observe her dogs. What like watch one of her videos where she's training one of her dogs and her, she has other dogs in the background and look at their energy, even while they're watching their brother or sister being trained and hearing the clicker and seeing the treats and, and, and look at their energy and their state of mind. Um, and it's really evident when you see that, how talented this woman is um, at not only training very complex chains of behavior through shaping, but also at doing that while maintaining a balanced and healthy state of mind and doing it all. I mean, she is as purely positive as you can get. I don't even think she uses the word no with her dogs. Um, and she's, she's, you know, she, I think she's, um, she's breaking a lot of myths out there about limitations of reward based training. Now that doesn't mean that that's the right path for everybody and that every dog owner could be expected to be able to achieve that same thing as her. Um, but I think she's showing what's possible and she, she, she certainly helped open my eyes to some possibilities with using food to reinforce low arousal. So I would, I would think about those kinds of things, Abigail, I would experiment with different forms of correction and find a correction that does put the dog from that again, forward seeking high arousal state into a sort of hanging back, moving away, low arousal kind of more submissive state, find the correction that does that naturally so that you don't have to rely on excessive intensity. Um, you guys have seen me use a squirt bottle very frequently. Sometimes that's a good choice. Sometimes noise related things. Sometimes the compressed air is super effective. Um, Evan Doggett uses the compressed air in his reactivity to romance series, I believe, which is a great series as well. Um, so, uh, that's kind of where I would start. I would be focusing on arousal. I would be focusing on exercises that capture low arousal and exercises that show the dog how we might be disagreeing with high arousal, but where we can, we can teach that not in these moments of extreme explosive reactivity, where it's hard for the dog to process any information, but we can begin to teach these concepts in a lower intensity situation, right? So if you haven't seen the food claiming or tried to implement that, I'd strongly recommend that because the food claiming teaches a concept that then you generalize into other areas. And one of the areas we generalize that is on the walk with reactive um, dogs. Okay. Um, but, and then also just recognize that German shepherds tend to be vocal. So you're sort of fighting an uphill battle a little bit. Just understand that. Um, you know, I know a lot of people love German shepherds, but if you don't want a loud dog, you probably shouldn't buy a German shepherd. They like to talk kind of like huskies. Hey listeners, just a quick reminder, these podcasts are created from archived recordings of live sessions where members of our community can ask questions and interact with our instructors in real time. If you'd like to be part of the discussion, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST to get 50% off your first three months. That's three months for $10 a month. And you have access to not only these live sessions, but also our library of hundreds of exclusive videos and courses on dog behavior. Again, visit considerthedog.com and use code CTDPODCAST. Let's get back to the show. Uh, trainer's name I mentioned, Emily Larlam. Um, Emily spelled the way you would think. Larlam is L-A-R-L-H-A-M, I believe. But on YouTube, it's Kiko Pup. K-I-K-O-P-U-P. -P. Um, she does have some online material on her website too. If you Google her, um, but she has a ton of stuff on her, on her YouTube, really talented. Um, you know, very, very purely positive. She's like anti e-collar, anti prong collar, you know, but, um, she's, I've, I've had, she, I consider her a friend. We've had some really nice conversations between the two of us. Um, and I just think she's exceptionally, exceptionally talented. Um, okay. So, Moving on. Good questions today, guys. Um, 
a lot of e-collar stuff. Oh yeah. You know what? Hey, really quick before I move on to other questions. Um, we've had a lot of e-collar questions in the Facebook group. And then obviously here as well in the stream, um, Brian Agnew, one of our instructors reached out to me yesterday after, um, I did the Facebook live a couple of days ago that it was responding to an e-collar question. And he had a great idea. He said, you know, what if we did a stream together to kind of talk about e-collar and talk about some of the different, different ways that it could be used in different considerations, because Brian and I actually use the e-collar kind of differently. Um, but I think we both agree that we have the same sort of underlying values with it and some of the same underlying principles as far as how we use it. We just have different training styles. And I think that's, that's sort of a nice thing to see. Um, that's one of the, the things that we sort of pride ourselves on here at Consider the Dog is that it's not sort of a there is only one way and it is the best way, you know, we like to stay open to other perspectives. Um, and there is a lot of ego out there and there are a lot of people there's, there's been also, I should say, and, and Brian brought this up also some discourse publicly recently in the broader dog world on social media, where some people have been very adamant about the only right way to use e-collars and this and that. Um, and so Brian and I thought it'd be nice to have, you know, he, he and I are good friends and colleagues and, uh, and, the, and we don't agree on everything and we're totally cool with not agreeing on everything. And that doesn't mean that one of us is right. And one of us is wrong. We just have different styles. And I think we want to focus on those underlying principles a little bit. And so we're going to have maybe a discussion between us and then open it up for questions. So I just wanted to see, maybe you guys can just let us know in the chat, if that's something you'd be interested in doing, maybe one of these live streams is an e-collar focus and a little bit more of like uh, a two-person roundtable between Brian Agnew and I. Um, so just throwing that out there. Let us know what you think in the chat box if that's something you guys would be interested in being a part of. Okay, so Gina, Gina, Gina. Okay, let me get back to my right page here. Boom. Okay, and hey, if you if you if you check out Emily's work and you want to like comment on one of her videos, let her know that uh, you heard about her from from myself and us here at Consider the Dog because I've actually tried to get her in the past to come and make videos for us, um, and uh, she kind of just has her own stuff going on. But maybe maybe if we if we throw love her way, she will uh, she will make some stuff for us or join us on one of these live streams or something. So if you check out Emily Larlam's work, Kiko Pup on YouTube. Maybe drop her a comment or send her a message and let her know that we are we are throwing love her way from Consider the Dog. Okay. Uh, Gina says, uh, how do I feel about using flexi leashes for training fearful dogs? Okay, Gina, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to say sort of what what's the context that you want to use the flexi leash for? Like what is the the purpose of it for you? Um, and I'll I'll preface that question by saying I don't I, I'm not inherently against flexi leashes or like any and all use of flexi leashes. I know some trainers are like super anti. Um, I don't feel that strongly about it. I just need to know a little bit more about like, I guess like it's like a little bit about the why, and then a little bit about the like, what are you using it for? Like like you know, why are you opting the flexi leash as opposed to? Is there something specific that you're using it for, or just in general? having a dog on a flexi and letting it wander around. I, I just need to know a little bit more about the intention there. And, um, and then I can answer that question more fully. So I'm going to move on to a different question and Jake's going to keep his eye on the chat box. If you're still on the stream and you want to just follow up on that for me, and then I can answer more thoroughly. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. This is a, this is an interesting one. So, um, Ross is asking, um, it's a client with a practically zero mo a client with practically zero mobility. So an individual with this not very physically capable, it sounds like, who has an overprotective German shepherd that's aggressive to visitors in the house. Any tips to help the owner regain control? This is probably a scenario, I'm just going to be really frank right up front, where I would probably recommend rehoming the dog. Um, an overprotective German shepherd is not an easy thing to deal with even for an able-bodied person and you throw in the client has low mobility. And I think the likelihood of success here is very low, very low. Um, and it can be a dangerous situation and a very stressful situation for both the owner and the dog. Now, perhaps there is a caretaker. Okay. If the caretaker 
has a vested interest in this dog and wants to be a part of it. And I make that clear because sometimes you have a caretaker who might feel pressure to do it or feel like they're obligated to do it, but really doesn't care that much about the dog or maybe doesn't even like the dog. And I think that's a really tough position to put somebody in. And I also think that again, if their heart's not in it, the um, success is reduced. So I'd want it to be somebody like if it's a, I don't know, somebody who's there pretty much 24 seven though, then regaining control of the dog. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, that would be a more likely scenario as far as how to do it. Um, I mean, you kind of got to start with the basics, you know, you got to start introducing the dog to some forms of communication. How do we tell the dog when we like things? How do we tell the dog when we don't like what it wants? Uh, make sure we find a form of reward that the dog likes. Make sure we find a form of correction or punishment that is yielding the result we want. Um, having some obedience structure for the dog around the house will be helpful. But again, we need a caretaker to be able to do that because somebody who's immobile is going to really struggle with that. And then making sure the dog, this is probably first and foremost, making sure the dog is getting enough exercise and mental enrichment. Because um, if the dog's just sort of cooped up all day in a house and a fenced in yard, um, again, that's not the life that a German shepherd was designed for. And so we're trying to fit a round peg in a very square hole at that point. So I think the odds are tremendously stacked against the situation. And if it were somebody that came to me with this situation, I would probably be, um, trying to steer them towards rehoming, rehoming the dog. Um, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just, I think there's too much room for error there. And um, somebody has already health things going on. The last thing they need is another stressor in their life. So, okay. Gina followed up. So again, the original question here was, how do I feel about using flexi leashes for training fearful dogs? And then when I asked, you know, context, she said, for teaching leash pressure and exposure to walks. Um, okay, for teaching leash pressure, I don't love the flexi for teaching leash pressure. And the reason I don't love it is because we actually have less nuance and control and sort of tactile two-way feel and feedback through a flexi leash. So a couple, couple things to clarify there, what I'm talking about is, let's say I want to apply pressure. I want to, I'm going to apply pressure to the dog and the flexi is currently unlocked. Well, the first thing I have to do is lock that flexi. And when you do that, if the dog has some momentum, it's really hard to do that and not have like a very sudden change, right? Like this very, it can be a, a jolting situation for the dog. Whereas if I'm holding a leash, I can kind of move and gradually sort of apply pressure, you know, absorbing some of the dog's momentum and have better control over the onset of the leash pressure, which especially for a fearful dog, I don't want any leash pressure to come on suddenly. Um, especially when I'm trying to teach leash pressure, right? Like, I mean, it can, it might happen, right? Like if, it, if a dog's on a leash, it's going to happen sooner or later. But I think if we're trying to teach leash pressure, I, I want to teach it, you know, especially with a fearful dog, let's be as nuanced as we can be. And then the other piece of that is, like I said, tactile feel. When I teach leash pressure, I use my fingertips on the leash a lot. The way I hold the leash, if you watch videos of me, it's kind of hard. I don't have a leash up here right now. Um, but the way I hold it, like this hand would be like a thumb lock and this hand, I would have the leash kind of going through this thumb. And if, if this hand is the leash, I've kind of do like this on the leash. So I've got a secure grip over here so that this hand doesn't have to grip hard. And I'm not going like pressure, release, pressure, release. I'm actually going pressure, release, pressure, release. And I'm using my thumb and fingers to create that pressure. And part of the reason I do that is um, a, like we can be a lot more um, dexterous with our fingers. We can do like tiny bits of pressure and release. It's a little bit harder to do that with our arms. Like you gotta have really good arm control, I guess. Um, but the other thing is nerve endings, right? Like we just have a lot more nerve endings in our fingertips. So when I'm trying to also feel like minor changes from the dog, like I apply pressure and I can feel the dog flexing their muscles against me. I can actually feel that through the leash and I can feel through the leash even before they've moved where I could like, where they'd actually, you know, they'd actually take the pressure off the line. Sometimes I can feel just that slight change in the pressure that tells me that they went from tensing their muscles against me 
to starting to soften their muscles a little bit. And I feel that and boom, I release the pressure. I tell the dog like, yes, I love that. I love that you just went from resisting me to not resisting me so much anymore. And I don't know that I would have that same sensitivity and feeling if I'm holding on a plastic flexi leash handle, if that makes sense. Um, so for teaching leash pressure, no questions asked. I prefer, for me, a six foot leash is ideal. That's what I like to teach leash pressure with. Um, for just getting the dog used to walks. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, no problem there. No issue whatsoever. Um, you could do a long line. You could do the flexi line. Um, you know, if you just want to make sure the dog doesn't feel too restricted and restrained, you're just trying to give the dog, like you want to take it out to a field and let it sniff and let it just sort of be a dog a little bit more. Yeah. I think that's what flexi leashes are good for. Um, you know, so like, even for me, um, there are times where if I had a dog that wasn't yet like awfully strained, like I might walk the dog to a field on a six foot leash. So I have more control and dexterity and all that stuff and then get to like a field and I, I might have a flexi leash in my back pocket, slap that flesh, bleh, slap that flexi leash on the dog and then give the dog some free time where they can kind of go back and forth. And I don't have to worry about a long line getting tangled under their feet and all those kinds of things, especially like some fearful dogs don't like the long line under their feet. Okay. So, um, so that's how I feel about flexi leashes. There are other training things they're really good for. I know some trainers that use them for recall training. I know trainers that use them for training the retrieve, like in this retrieve work. I know trainers that keep them on while they're playing with dogs. If the dog's not off these trained yet, and they're playing like tug of war and they'll use a flexi leash. They'll like clip it to their belt loop so the dog can kind of come forward away. And they don't, again, they're not worried about the um, dog getting tangled up, those kinds of things. Or if it's like muddy ground or whatever, you know, or snowy outside, you don't want your long line and all the muck the mush. So yeah, there are, there are okay uses for flexies. So my answer is no to the leash pressure. Yes. To the exposure for walks. That's at least for me. Um, but different people teach leash pressure differently. You know, if you think it's working for you for leash pressure and you think it's helping and you think that you're getting, if you've tried doing it on a regular leash and then you tried it on the flexi and for whatever reason, you just feel like this dog is responding better to the flexi, then go with what you're seeing. Cause I'm not there. I don't, my boots aren't on the ground. So, um, you know, trust your own instinct and judgment and just make your decisions on sort of what you're seeing objectively right in front of you. That's all. I guess that's what I'll say about that. Okay. Um, I got time for, I think one more question here, maybe two, we'll see. Um, okay. So Lisa says she has a two-year-old rescue um, that steals toys from other dogs. The family wanted to let the dogs work it out. Disagree. I was going to focus on recalling out. Yeah, I agree with you, Lisa. <laughs> um, I mean, you do, sometimes the dogs do work it out and sometimes that's fine. And sometimes you end up with a trip to the emergency vet and um, it's just not really a risk that I want to take as a professional, you know, if that's the risk they want to take for themselves, you know, that's, that, that's on them. Um, but as a professional, we have to be thinking about, you know, giving professional advice, <laughs> you know, I just wouldn't tell them to work it out. Um, I think it's dangerous. So yeah, we want to teach, we want to teach some boundaries. We want to establish those rules. Plus if they let them work it out, what could happen is, um, the other dog, if it's like they have another dog in the house, for instance, I'm assuming that's, that's what's going on when they say they wanted to let the dogs work it out. I'm assuming there's another dog in the house or multiples. Those other dogs could start becoming very aggressive towards this dog. And depending on this dog's personality and their personalities, um, that may not be a just like we work it out kind of thing. Uh, sometimes dogs can start out with a couple squabbles and then they get worse and they can develop a real grudge match. And I've, I've worked with some dogs and, and, and these are the worst case scenarios the ones that I think are, are, have a very low, um, success rate are cases where it's gotten to a point where the dogs literally can't even be in the same room together and like cross eyes. Like they can't make eye contact. I don't know that I've ever been able to really fully resolve the situations when it's gotten to that point and it can get to that point. Um, so let's not create extra work for ourselves. So I think, yeah, doing the, um, 
yeah, last time it turned bloody. So yeah, I mean, right away. So we want to, we want to be the ones in the house that teach the dogs proper manners around the other dogs that the other dogs don't have to teach it. Cause that's what happens, right? When the other dogs see that, that we're not stepping in, we're not creating some kind of rules around how are we all supposed to behave? Like we do that for our kids, right? Like we don't just expect our kids to work it out. We, if you have an older kid and a younger kid, the younger kid is grabby, you know, you, you help to intervene because you don't want that older kid to just have to smack them eventually, right? Like they don't know how to deal with that situation if they're like a four-year-old kid. So we're there, we're monitoring, we're intervening, we're interrupting, we're helping those children to learn manners around each other and those interpersonal skills, right? Like we don't ever expect little kids to just figure that stuff out on their own. And um, it's the same thing for our dogs, right? And so if, if we make them work it out, Sometimes it goes well, many times it does not, not a good, uh, risk reward there for me. So I'm going to be the one that establishes those rules. Um, by the way, easy way to do this. And again, sound like a broken record here, but the food claiming exercise, right. Where we're teaching how we can create space around a resource around something interesting. So you take this new rescue dog. You work on the food claiming exercise with the owners. And then once the dog understands that, they understand what's expected of them. The owner's got the skill sets now. Then we go, okay, cool. Now let's give the other dog a bone or a toy. And now we're going to be ready. If this guy moves in, that we're going to claim the other dog who has the toy. We're going to claim that space around the other dog. And the dog, we, we do that. And the dog goes, oh, I know what that means when you move your body in that way and you make that sound. That means that's off limits to me and I should go find something else to do. And so now, rather than wait for it to happen, and we've never set up any, any expectation about this, right? And we try to teach the dog what we want from them in this moment of kind of high contention, right? Where there's a, there's a, a resource that's being contended for. Um, again, like potential low probability of success or a lot of potential for things to go wrong or might need a lot more repetition. It could develop stress throughout those repetitions. So teach our expectations ahead of time, teach the skill set to the dog, teach the skill set to the owners, then apply that skill set where we need to. Using the skills from food claiming is, you know, in this context is a perfect application or generalization of that skill set and a perfect example of how that exercise can be so practical and helpful for a variety of different behavior problems. So that's how I would approach it. If it were my client, that's exactly what I would do. I would do food claiming to teach the dog and the owner the skills, and then bam, apply those skills to the context of teaching them that when another dog has a resource that it's off limits to them. That's, that's how I would approach it. You could do the recall and the out too. Um, that's fine. It's just another way to approach the same thing. But again, like you would do the same thing. Like you wouldn't, teach the recall in that moment, you would teach it ahead of time. And then you would apply the recall. The reason I like the food cleaning better is it's a, it's a more direct communication, right? So here's, here's dog a, who's got the bone and here's rescue dog who comes over and we say, come and the dog comes to us. And if we do that enough, they go, Hey, every time I go to this dog, you call me away. Like maybe it's just not worth even trying. But on that very first repetition and second repetition and third repetition, we didn't tell the dog anything about that what they are doing is off limits, right? That it's something inappropriate, that they're actually violating a rule, right? We didn't communicate that. All we communicated was we'd like you to come to us. So will it, and can it eventually solve the problem with repetition? Sure it can. Um, my personal approach would be to communicate more directly. What, I'm, what am I actually trying to tell this dog? I'm trying to tell him don't do that. So I'd rather use a communication that means don't do that, right? That that thing is off limits to you. You do not have access to it because it's not really that I want you to come to me and yay, what a great recall you did. Like that's not actually my goal. My goal is to teach you to not do this thing and to understand that some, that some resources are off limits to you. So I'd much prefer to use an exercise that clearly communicates that to the dog because it's just gonna be faster and more direct. That's my personal approach. Some people don't like the food claiming exercise. That's fine. Do the recall and out. If that's what works for you, if that's what you're comfortable with, um, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. So different strokes for different folks.
Okay. All right. I'm going to wrap up there, guys. So um, thanks for the great questions. This was really good. Again, um, you know, let us know. You can post in the Facebook group too. Brian and I are talking about doing a um, just a little e-collar chat, you know, between the two of us. Um, answer a lot of the questions, dispel maybe some of the myths. Um, you know, you guys can kind of hear two professionals talk that don't do it the same way, but that also don't think the other person is wrong or a bad trainer, right? Because I think that's something that the world needs more of right now. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. I'm going to end the stream. Thanks all for joining us. We'll be back here the third Thursday of the month. I don't have that. What's the date? I'll let you know the date. It is the 21st of April at three o'clock. So uh, can join us again for that. And we will be happy to see you there. Take care, everybody. That's all for today. Thank you for joining me. Tune in to episode 11, where I'll be joined by the supremely knowledgeable Sarah Dixon. We'll see you then.